Recently, a new course was offered at Yale University. The class is called Psychology and the Good Life, and the basic premise of the class is how to understand and apply true happiness to your life. Well, very quickly, it became the most popular class in the entire history of the school. Yale is 316 years old. The most popular class ever, about a quarter of the entire school has enrolled in this class. The question is why, and, and, and articles have been written on this now. Why is it such a popular class? Well, because even among very young, bright, ambitious college students, the absence of happiness is at an all-time high. The longing for happiness is something that haunts even these young students who are destined to go on, many of them, to great success, but they're desperate to know how they can have more, how they can have a fulfilling life. See, everyone desperately wants to be happy, but nobody really knows how, or at least how to hold on to it once you've got it, how to maintain it, right? And so they're lined up out the door at Yale for this class, and now many other institutions have begun to offer similar courses. So what's the secret? What does the class teach you? Well, the keys to happiness are to avoid getting overscheduled, to limit your time on social media, to practice gratitude, to be more generous, to get uh, exercise, to meditate, and to get sufficient sleep. Those are basically the keys to happiness. Now, all those are good ideas. I know those things can contribute to a person's well-being. But there's one serious problem, at least one, that comes up when you begin to talk about daily habits to become a happier person. There's one thing that really derails this pursuit, and it's suffering. It's the reality of suffering. See, because uh, uh, daily habits that increase a person's well-being, those things don't really do you any good if you're really facing serious pain in your life. If you're, if you're being persecuted, if you're fearful, if you're experiencing true hardship, no amount of daily habits for a better life are going to do you a whole lot of good. And everybody knows that. And so for a person to truly be happy, what most of us do is we try to cushion ourselves against pain and suffering. I mean, that's really all we can hope for, that, that if we can somehow avoid suffering uh, as much as we can throughout this life, then we'll have a chance to be happy because at the root we know that happiness and suffering are mutually exclusive. They just don't go together. They're like oil and water. But, you know, that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible, the Christian faith, has a much more robust view of the human life than simply making it our goal to be happier and more fulfilled people. Because God's goals for us are higher than that. God's goals for you are higher than just your happiness and comfort and fulfillment. I've said this before, but we are not God's pets. God did not create you in order to make you comfortable and happy in your time upon the earth. God's goals for you are higher than that. See, if, God, if God's desire was simply to make you happy and comfortable, then suffering makes no sense. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. Suffering uh, destroys the good plan that God has for you. But see, if God's desire for you is to actually make you righteous, if his desire is to make you more like Jesus, then suffering does not destroy that purpose. It actually helps fulfill it. I'll say that again. If God's desire is to make you more like Jesus, suffering does not destroy that purpose. It contributes to it. It doesn't destroy you. It makes you. And that's what the Apostle Peter wants to show us today. 
that the Christian life is actually a life of deep, abiding, eternal joy, not just flimsy, temporary happiness, but joy forever. And yet at the center of it is a suffering man. At the center of this great joyful life that God desires for us is a cross and a man who was nailed to it. And so for us to understand true, abiding, eternal joy, we have to understand that there's a cross at the center of it that we have to come to and even through. And that's what Peter's going to show us in 1 Peter chapter 2. If, if you were here last week, it doesn't matter if you weren't, but what we talked about last week, the middle of chapter 2, Peter is speaking to people who are presently suffering. He is speaking into their current painful circumstances. Okay, He's not talking about uh, a hypothetical pain. They're going through it in the midst of this letter that he's writing. And his commission in the middle of chapter 2 for the church, he says, you are to live such holy lives among those who persecute you that perhaps when they see your goodness, they will turn and glorify God as well. You are to live in such a way that you are a light in dark places, even when it's terribly difficult. And so model for the world what grace and goodness really looks like especially when life is hard. That's Peter's commission to them. And he says, if you suffer for doing what is right, you will find ultimate favor and grace with God. That was the message from last week. Well, today, in, beginning in verse 22, Peter's going to expand on this idea, and he's going to show us what that favor or that grace from God really looks like here. Why is it so precious to us? So look with me again at verse 21. What we read just a minute ago, we'll take it piece by piece. Verse 21, he says, For you, the church, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. When Peter uses that word called, he, he means saved. That's what called means for Peter. So what he's saying here in that first part, he says, you've been saved for the purpose of suffering. And I know that's a mind-blowing idea. That seems so counterintuitive. I've spent most of my life believing that if I just love God, bad things won't happen to me, or at least they won't happen as often. But Peter is right here, he's echoing a larger truth that we find throughout all the Bible, that pain is not a disruption of God's purposes for you. That pain is part of your purpose. It's part of it. Why? Because he says, because Christ also suffered for you. Christ also suffered for you. Now, there are two quick things that come out of that little statement. When we, when we read that, that Christ also suffered for you, two things. First, and real briefly here, if God's own perfect son suffered on this earth, why would I think that I should be exempt from it? I'm not entitled to anything good. I'm not entitled to a happy, comfortable, easy life. If Jesus suffered, then I should expect to suffer too, okay? But then more importantly than that, why does Peter say Christ suffered? Two little words. He says, for you. For you. In other words, only through his pain could he bring about your salvation. Jesus didn't suffer pointlessly, and neither do we. And that's always the question we're tempted to ask. That's why we see suffering and happiness as mutually exclusive ideas, because suffering to us seems so pointless. It seems so meaningless. What could possibly be the purpose of this thing I'm going through? But Jesus didn't suffer needlessly or pointlessly, and the Bible says neither do we. That's why in verse 21, it ends with an encouragement. He says, because Christ suffered for you, he leaves now an example for you to follow in his steps. That's the encouragement for us. And we see that in verse 22. 
Um, Peter's going to quote in verse 22 from Isaiah chapter 53, one of the great Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus and what he was going to come and do. But you, you know, Peter actually witnessed what Isaiah 53 prophesied. The suffering of Jesus, Peter was there. When Jesus suffered the ultimate injustice of his betrayal and his crucifixion, Peter, even though he denied Christ and maintained his distance, he, he was watching this thing unfold. He calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Jesus. And so Peter is affirming what Isaiah prophesied centuries before right here. Look at verse 22. How did Jesus suffer? What did he do in the midst of it? Because this is the example, right? Verse 22, Jesus, Peter says, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him, the Father, who judges righteously. When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read through the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' suffering, his betrayal, his arrest, his, his uh, crucifixion, um, it's a thing of beauty. When we, when we see how he responds, how he goes through it, he's so composed, he's so brave, he's so at peace, he's so righteous. Jesus, at one point, asks God to forgive the very men who were nailing him to the cross. They don't know what they're doing, he said. And then a moment later, Jesus grants salvation and forgiveness to a man next to him who's being executed as a thief. And Jesus is, is showing us something that for us, I mean, we ought to just marvel at him, but Peter says, don't stop there. Don't just marvel. He says, imitate. Jesus left you an example to follow in his steps. And if there's one main point of that little section right there, I think it's this, that Jesus, in the face of unjust suffering, did not condescend. He didn't lower himself to the same level of his accusers and his murderers, did he? And why not? Well, Peter tells us at the end of verse 23, because he entrusted himself to God, who judges righteously. And that's the whole key for us. That's really the imitation that we're called into. It's not just how we act, but at, at the root level, where is my trust? What is my deepest belief? Jesus believed that he could entrust himself, even in the worst of suffering, he could entrust himself to God because God judges righteously. Listen, when you suffer, especially when you suffer hardship at the hands of other people, when other people do you wrong, the most natural thing in the world is to fight back, is to curse and scream, to, to file suit, to slander, to threaten, to get revenge. That's natural to us. But following Jesus, according to Peter, it says we entrust ourselves to the righteous judgment of God. That means that at the heart level, you and I have to trust that God is the righteous judge, not me. That God is the one who is sovereign over all the universe, and therefore he is perfectly capable of making sure everything wrong is made right. That everything evil is judged, and that everything that is righteous will then be rewarded. That's what Jesus did. And so see, Jesus, when he was on the cross, he knew that his suffering would be vindicated. He knew that the evil being done to him would not fulfill its intended purpose that he would not only die, but he would rise again from the grave, and that evil would not prevail. And now we're called to walk in the same conviction, to entrust ourselves to God, knowing that he's the one who judges righteously. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but that's incredibly hard to do. 
There's nothing in you, there's nothing in me that actually wants to do that. Even if we acknowledge how great it sounds and how wonderful the example of Jesus is, my heart doesn't want this. Um, And I can prove it to you. A while back, I went through a, a situation where I felt like I was being done wrong. And frankly, it seems silly to me now as I look back on it, but at the time, I was burned up over it. I mean, I was hot. And, and I can admit to you that there was, there was very little entrusting myself to God who judges righteously going on in my heart. Uh, I stewed over it. I had a lot of imaginary co- conversations in my mind. I don't know if you ever do that, where you play out an argument in your mind, and I, I was always going to win that argument, you know. Um, I made assumptions about other people that were almost certainly untrue. And the sad part about it is that God was giving me an opportunity to apply this truth, and I whiffed. I mean, God, it's like God put the ball on the tee for me. First Peter chapter 2, here's my opportunity, and I struck out with the ball on the tee. I mean, I, just, I didn't live out what, what, what Christ has called us to and is an example. And my, my guess is that you all, I mean, all of us, we have stories like this. We can all point to times in our lives where some, we were being done wrong, we were being accused, something unfair, unjust was going on, and we did not respond the way that Jesus responded. We just didn't, we didn't live it out. Um, and that's why we should be thankful, okay? That's why I'm thankful that this chapter doesn't end at verse 23, okay? I'm, I'm thankful, you should be thankful, that, the, that the, the, uh, when, when Peter exhorts us here to follow in the example of Jesus Christ, that he doesn't leave us at that. Because when we're called to imitate Jesus, that's a very real thing that we, we ought to set our minds to. But if that's all, then that will absolutely crush you. And it will crush me. Because Jesus sets a standard that we can't possibly live up to. Jesus was the perfect man. We see it in terms of how he responded to suffering. There was no deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he entrusted himself entirely to God. Okay, none of us can really do that with any consistency in our lives. And that's why our hope, and and hear me on this, our hope today is not in our imitation of Jesus. We're called to that, but that's not our hope. Our hope is in Jesus' substitution for us. Okay? And that's why there's a verse 24 before we get to the end of this chapter. The example of Jesus will only take you so far. Ultimately, Jesus has to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. Look at verse 24, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For we all were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. You know, the ultimate suffering that Jesus experienced, it didn't come in the form of whips and thorns and nails. The, the cross had to have been absolutely excruciating. We just can't even imagine it. But that was not the extent of, our, of his suffering. His true suffering on the cross, the scripture tells us, what came in the bearing of our sins. In the bearing of our sins. When, when I was a youth pastor several years ago, we had a young man show up to a crawfish boil that we did. And at the crawfish boil, uh, I got up real briefly. I shared you know, a few words about how God loves us. Jesus died for us. And then we cleaned everything up and packed up and went home. Well, a few days later, this, this young man, this high school student, came to see me in my office with a folded-up sheet of paper full of questions. 
And one of the questions on the, the paper was, now why did Jesus have to die for me to forgive my sins? And yeah, that's an obvious question, but I don't think anybody would ever asked me that before. And I probably kind of fumbled through some kind of answer for him. I don't know. I hope that I told him what I'm about to, to tell you, okay? Um, couldn't God have just forgiven us with a wave of his hand? I mean, why, why did Jesus have to come and suffer and die for the forgiveness of our sins? Well, Peter tells us why right here. And he tells us why in the form of, at least in my translation, it's just, it's just one word. It's the word bore. B-O-R-E. Jesus had to bear your sins in order to forgive you. And here's why. Because God takes sin with ultimate seriousness. Uh, you and I at times may not. I may treat sin very casually and flippantly, like it's no big deal. But God never does. Even the smallest sins, God takes seriously. And here's why. Because every sin, every violation of God's law, is an affront to his righteousness. Every sin is a corruption of God's image, the purity of his image in which you and I were created. Every sin defiles the purpose for which God made us, and every sin is a rejection of God's goodness and his glory. That's why sin is such a serious issue. And so for God to just wave his hand and forgive me, that would actually be unjust. That would be unjust. It'd be like God just sweeping it all under the rug and pretending like it never happened. And, and God can't do that. It's not just that he won't. He can't. Because righteousness requires justice. Uh, in Hebrews 2, it says, Every sin and every act of disobedience must receive a just penalty. The scripture says we bear the just penalty of our sins. Uh, that idea of bearing something, we use that in terms of I bear responsibility, I bear a weight, I bear a burden. It means that it's something that you carry, that you are now responsible for. And that's what the scripture tells us. The sin that I commit is the sin that I bear. And y'all, that's bad news for me. That's bad news for us. If God should judge sin according to righteousness, I don't have a leg to stand on when that day comes. And that's why 1 Peter 2.24 ought to be so precious to us. It's something I'd encourage you to memorize and take to heart when it says that he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross. We realize what he's done for us. Jesus doesn't forgive you in some kind of abstract way. It's not a flimsy, therapeutic kind of love that he shows to us in the cross. He actually bears your sins. He takes on the full weight and responsibility for every dark, evil, sinful thing you've ever done as if he's the one who did it, as if he committed my sins rather than me. God has put all of our evil and darkness into his account, and he bore it rather than you. It's almost impossible for us to imagine this. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the the the, the standard of law that we abide by as a, as a society would never tolerate something like this. It's beyond our comprehension that someone else, in this case a sinless man, a perfect man, would bear the responsibility, he would take on the full blame and the full penalty for everyone else's sin. And that's why he had to die. That's why he had to die. Because the just penalty for sin had to be paid. It had to be Satisfied, And so we see in Jesus this incredible, unthinkable achievement. 
that on one hand, if we ask the question, is God just? The answer is yes. God is just. If he forgives my sins, that's not an unjust action because someone has paid the penalty for what I've done. It just wasn't me. In that way, God can forgive your sins. He can destroy your sin without destroying you. Because Jesus Christ was destroyed in your place. And therefore, you have now forgiveness rather than a penalty. Because Jesus took your place, you get death instead of li- you get life instead of death. Um, that's grace. That's the gospel. Okay. Now, how, how do we tie this together? I thought this was about suffering. Well, well listen to what Peter's telling us here. It's in Jesus' substitution for you that we're now able to imitate him. It's because of what he did in his suffering and through his suffering. Remember what Peter said, he suffered for you, that now we have any chance, any empowerment, any capability of actually suffering righteously as well. What's natural to us does not have to win the day when bad things happen. The cursing and screaming, the giving up, the throwing in the towel. No, because Jesus Christ suffered for you, now we have the ability to suffer righteously as well. And so Peter's point in in, uh, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that, right? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a so that. It's not just the substitution for its own sake, There's a practical reality that now comes out of this, that because of what's been done for us, we now can live in his footsteps. We can die to sin and live to righteousness. So what Jesus has done for you spiritually can work itself out practically. Because Jesus died for your sins, you can now die to sin and live to righteousness. And for some of us, we we struggle to believe that. There are sins in, in our lives, perhaps, that are so destructive, that are so... Um, overwhelming to us, things that perhaps we've been struggling with for years, and how in the world am I ever going to overcome it? The Apostle Paul said it like this, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it any longer? Right? You didn't die to sin by your own doing. You didn't overcome it by your own good efforts. Jesus Christ did it for you, and now Paul says you're simply living out the new reality that you've been given. He said, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. That's your great hope. If there's a sin in your life that is overwhelming to you, that seems like you could never overcome it, understand that your, that your ability to overcome it does not come from within you and your own resources. It comes from what has been done for you and has now been given to you as a gift. Okay? We can do this. Um, but it has to be for us something that we recognize, Jesus has done it all for me, and now I get to live it out. Okay? Otherwise, it's called self-righteousness. It's your effort against all the, the, the schemes of the enemy. It's your effort against your own destructive desires and mine, okay? And, and that's not a battle that we're going to win. Only through Christ. Uh, I, my friend John, a few years ago, he visited Berlin in Germany. And if you, now my, my history is a little fuzzy. Y'all can correct me later on this. Berlin was a city that was at one time divided in half. East Berlin, West Berlin. East Berlin... Uh, the, the Berlin Wall divided them. East Berlin was under the weight of communism, under Russian control, and there was a great deal of oppression and darkness that came along with that, and East Berlin lived for years and years under the heavy weight of communism until the late 80s, the wall was torn down. The Berlin Wall is no more, and now it's simply a historical landmark, the line, but no wall. 
Okay? So Berlin is just Berlin. It's all under German control now. Well, John visited Berlin, and when he walked from west to east out of curiosity, he said it was a staggering thing. That even almost now 30 years later, he said, when you walk into East Berlin, he said it's still very dark, it's very cold, it's very eerie. There's less development, there's less, uh, there's, there are fewer kids playing. It's different, he said. And the way he, the way he phrased it to me was like this. He said, it's, it's like these people have been set free, but nobody told them. It's like these people have, have been liberated but they don't realize that it ever happened. And so even though the wall's been torn down, they still live and operate under the stench and the weight of something that is no more. And you know, that's what Peter's calling us to here. When he says that we die to sin and live to righteousness, the warning is that if we don't recognize what Jesus Christ has done for us in liberating us, then we won't function as if it's really happened. Jesus said this in John chapter uh, 8. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so this is not when Jesus forgives your sin. It's not an abstraction. It's real. It's something that has really happened to us. And because it's real, we now get to live it out. We're free from sin. We're free from death. We're free not just from the penalty of sin, but now from the power of sin. And we can live to righteousness. Now, when you suffer, this especially takes takes, uh, uh, has the potential to take root and change our lives, okay? When life is easy, we can make excuses for ourselves. When life is easy and things are going well, we can, you know, we can pursue God or not pursue God. And a lot of us will have that, that experience. Um, of course, it's, it's always wrong to not pursue the Lord, but you know what I mean. When life is easy, we're, we're less prone to dig in. But when we suffer, death to sin and life to righteousness uh, becomes something very, very precious to us. You know, when Jesus suffered... Uh, he was always righteous. He was always glorious. But there was something about the suffering of Christ that opened people's eyes. They, people saw Jesus at the deepest level on that cross, and what they saw astounded him. Do you remember the story of the, of the Roman man who was standing at the cross as Jesus breathed his last breath? And he looked at him and he said, Surely this man was the Son of God, because he saw him suffer. Okay, so when we talk about what Peter's calling us to here, he's calling us to embrace what Jesus Christ has done in our place so that we may now live it out. So that when times get difficult, when we get marginalized, when we get pushed up against the wall, that we will, re- we, we will realize to the deepest, at the deepest level that we have truly died to sin and we can live to righteousness. So what happens when we suffer as Christians? Well, Peter's told us, we saw this last week. When we suffer, we show the world a picture of what God looks like. We have an opportunity to be a light in dark places so that other people might see us suffer and turn and glorify God. No human being can act like this. Something divine must be at work here. They might turn and see God through us. And today we see another vital purpose. It's our union with Jesus. It's our union with Christ that Jesus suffered for you in order that your suffering might make you like him. If Jesus suffered for you, it's so that your suffering might make you like him. Um, I'll state the obvious here as we close. Uh, this sounds great, but none of us want to do it. Nobody wants to suffer, and you shouldn't want to. I mean, there's a, there's a certain... Um, we're not masochists. We don't, we don't go looking for pain, okay, as like if, if it's some kind of badge of honor. Um, I don't want to suffer any more than you do. 
But it's, it's a plain fact of life for everybody. I mean, it's, it, and here's, here's where the rubber meets the road for us. It's not like there's some alternate route that we can take whereby we just won't suffer at all. That God gives us plan A and plan B. You know, plan A, you know, is, is that's, that's the harder way if you're really serious. But, you know, there's a plan B if you don't really want to go through all that difficult stuff. There's no, there is no alternate route. It doesn't exist. And that's not just true for Christians. That's true for everybody. Everybody suffers in this life. It's just the truth. And it can be an even more intense reality for Christians. And so the question can't be, do I want to go through this? We don't get a choice. The question becomes, how will I go through it? How will I go through it? It's the inevitable reality for us. It's going to happen, so I'm going to walk through it. How? And remember, if our goal in life is simply to be happy, to to be comfortable, to find fulfillment in in the temporary things of this life then you, you and I are going to have to, to, to constantly keep our heads on a swivel, looking for bad things on the horizon so that we can avoid them. That's the only hope we have. If, if my great desire is to be a happy person, then I've got to cushion myself against suffering at all costs. I fear, I live in fear of pain disrupting that pursuit of happiness because suffering in that case only exists in order to steal our joy. But not in the Bible. Not in the Christian life. Because if our goal aligns with God's goal, remember God's goal is not that you be happy and comfortable. God's goal is that you be like Jesus, that you be righteous, and that you experience a joy that attends that, that comes with it, that, uh, that is a joy beyond our imagination. It's not fleeting happiness. It's something deeper. If God's goal is to make you more like Jesus, then suffering does not destroy that goal. It helps fulfill it. Suffering does not destroy God's good purpose for you. It contributes to his good purpose for you because in it, you become more and more like Christ. And that is the ultimate desire for which God puts you on this earth. That's why the Apostle Paul said, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also become united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. That's not a, a, a tip for a happier life. That's life itself. That's life itself. A life that only comes through the cross. Let's pray. Father, this is a very hard word for me. Um, and, I, and I pray that we just, where we, where we sit this morning, that we acknowledge this truth. We don't want to suffer. There's nothing about us that, that, that looks forward to, to, uh, to grief to pain, to sickness, to disease. There's, there's nothing about us that, that, that enjoys conflict and broken relationships um, or persecution or whatever it may be. We don't want that. But Lord, it's, it's the way you've set up this world. It's a broken world. It's a world full of suffering, um, mainly because of sin. And Father, it's, it's sin that you came to atone for it, sin that you came, Lord, to, uh, to punish in the, son, in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and so, Father, even though this world is, is um, in so many ways, we live under the curse, we live under the heavy weight of pain and suffering, Father, um, we see in Jesus Christ that it is not purposeless. In fact, it has, it has infinite meaning. Because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. 
And so, Father, where, where you have appointed us, where you've called us to this purpose, for the purpose of enduring hardship, Lord, um, I pray that we would not be crushed underneath it, but that in the strangest way we'd be empowered, that we would, we would endure with great patience and grace, and that we would, in the, in the most backward way, we'd even find joy in it. Um, not because it's enjoyable, but because we, we are being forged into Christ's likeness. We are being... We are, are experiencing what our Savior experienced to some degree, that we might be made like him. And Lord, that even, even as we, we acknowledge how wonderful that is, Father, it's, it's, uh, it's still a scary proposition. And so I pray for me, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, that Lord, uh, where we might be suffering even now, or where suffering might be somewhere on the horizon for us, and, and we, don't, we don't know when that day will come, that, Lord, you would do the empowering work right now, that, you, you, that, that we wouldn't find ourselves in that day without resources simply acting out of our sinful nature, but that, Father, we would be uh, uh, digging ever deeper into this wonderful truth of, of God's grace through Jesus Christ. So that, Lord, as we even talk about it today, you would prepare our hearts well for that day. And, Lord, we'll never get it all right. We'll never perfectly exemplify the character of Jesus. But, but that's not your ultimate goal for us, Father. And we thank you for it. Our hope is not in our imitation of him. Our hope is in what he's done for us. And so, Father, root us well in that right now. Um, uh, show us, God, show me the places in my life where I settle for, for temporary happiness. And point us instead, Lord, to deep, abiding, eternal joy that is not found only in the temporary things of this world, but it's found in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we, we ask, I ask that, um, that where we sit right now, encourage us. Um, this, is, this is a hard, it's a hard truth. But, Lord, this is, this is the truth. And we thank you, Lord, that in Christ, um, our worst days have great purpose. Our worst days are still filled with great hope because we have a Savior who's gone ahead of us, that he suffered for us. And we thank you in his name. Amen.